Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Endoband. Endoband provides you with a quick and easy workout on the go. Today's guest is an old coworker of mine from when we both worked in tech. Feels like a lifetime ago. Yali Shulansky has gone through quite the journey with trauma and eating disorders and now helps schools integrate contemplative and mind-body-spirit practices into their classrooms. So welcome, Yali. Hi, Harper. So happy to have you here. I am very happy to be here. It's been a while. It has been a while. I love that the last time we saw each other, you were pregnant and we were on a boat meditating together. That's right. That (laughs) is the last time we saw each other, which is quite a while ago. Yeah, we got to change that. Mm -hmm. So let's get right into things. You've experienced chronic depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and body dysmorphia. Can you talk a little bit about your journey with these illnesses and when they began and in what ways they intertwine? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Big question. (laughs) How long do we have? All the time in the world. Go for it. So I would say that my anxiety and probably a little bit of my depression started when I was a child. I did not know at the time to label it as that or to really do anything about it. And neither did my, my parents. And it was just not something that was in my awareness. But looking back, I could see that a lot of my behaviors were done so that I could avoid certain situations or cope with feelings that were too big for me. And an example of that would be in uh, summer camp. I was in summer camp and I did not. And let me just backtrack and say that in my childhood, I moved around quite a bit. I was born in Israel. We lived there until I was four. Then we moved to France and we moved away from there when I was 10 to the United States. And then there was movement within there. So in France, I was in a summer camp and I just could not make friends with other kids. So my response to that was to make friends with trees. And I would go and I would spend the free time that we had and go and just hang out with the trees and talk to the leaves. And and I would make up all these really intricate worlds. And that is, I think, how I coped with just feeling very isolated and alone. And that's all just looking back. Back then it was, I have a wonderful world of trees. You don't think that you were looking at it at that time as like you were a lonely kid? I don't think I ever considered myself lonely. I had in my classroom, we were a very small class. There were 13 of us and five girls and we were together for all of elementary school. So we were basically just friends with drama and things that happen in there. But I don't, you know, I I was, I've always been very close to my family and my cousins in Israel. And there was a constant um, travel there and everybody's coming. and, And so I did see enough people that I didn't feel like a lonely child. I would say when I entered middle school in the United States, which was a huge transition, a huge shift going from a tiny little village school to this huge public school where I had to switch classes and every year I had different teachers and students with me. And that was very hard for me. And I didn't, I spoke English, but I had a very heavy accent. 
which uh, I made I was made fun of for quite a bit and made it a personal goal to eradicate my accent, which clearly I have. No, and, and over the years, I've allowed myself to let certain things come back in, but I really worked very hard because it was a very sore point for me. And that made me feel very anxious. Um, I was a pretty good student, but I would retreat into... I would just get very stressed around everything, really. Um, and it, it, and I would take it inward. I was not the kind of person who would freak out and throw things and have a tantrum. I would really take it inward and it would bottle up and bottle up and eventually it would come out. And in middle school, what ended up happening, I had two years in sixth and seventh grade where I was selected into these little programs that my middle school was trying out, which were amazing. It was a small class. We were all did, we did these great projects together. And then in eighth grade, I was thrown back into the regular general pool of students. And the way that it worked is that the school was divided into teams, which was basically just cohorts of a hundred students. And all of my friends were on one team and I was on a different team. It was just random. And so I lost a lot of connections that way because at that age, it's whoever you see during the day that you just are friends with. And I started really feeling down, I would say. And I remember just looking back, I remember the pain of missing those friendships and yearning, a lot of yearning, a lot of jealousy of why aren't you hanging out with me? And and those are the moments that I really see sort of things starting to pop up. Now, I should backtrack and say that there was a very big event, um, which was when I was eight years old, I was sexually assaulted in my school by a group of older boys, which at the time I had no idea how to put anywhere. It just sort of went away. And my, when I think back about it, the way that I reacted to it was to start controlling things. And for me, it it was always food. I would hide chocolates in my desk and I would eat and then I would have like all these wrappers that I'd have to get rid of. And, or I would, um, I don't even remember, but I remember that when I think back to those behaviors, that's where it really took root, where it fully came out as, um, full blown depression and the eating disorder started was in high school. Um, I, it sort of didn't, it didn't occur to me that there was anything wrong. But in junior year, after another year of friendships sort of shifting around, and when I was a junior in, in high school, my father, um, he had to go, basically, he was offered this amazing position in Singapore. And my family, my parents decided that he would go and live there. And eventually, my mother, and my sister would join when I was when I started college. But it just created such a, a very challenging, very hard, very sad situation in our home because we missed my dad and my mom missed my dad and my mom, you know, really, I, as a mom now, I can see how overwhelmed she must have been, first of all, emotionally, but also all of a sudden she's the one parent taking care of my sister and myself and she, my sister at the time was nine and that, and I just started taking on a lot on myself. I took on, um, sort of shuttling my sister back and forth to places and emotionally helping her through things. And I did the whole college search by myself and SATs and all of that because my parents, A, also weren't really aware of that, but also had a lot 
to deal with, a lot on their plates. And it just got to the point where it was, I had taken so much in that it just needed to go somewhere. And like many teenagers that are struggling with depression and anxiety, I started uh, self-harming to just release pressure, really just sort of like a pressure cooker turning out the top. And it, um, for me, it was very dramatic the first time. And the hard part was that when I did, I did actually tell people and the reaction I got overall was just don't do that again. Uh, one of my friends said that at the time she contemplated referring me to the school psychologist, but she was, you know, young. So she didn't, you know, I don't blame her for that. We're still very good friends. <laughs> um, and it just, and I just sort of carried that with me. Why do you think you told her? I think I wanted to be helped. I think it's a pattern for me throughout my whole life until I actually decided, okay, this is it. I, there were many instances where I, I wouldn't, I don't want to say act out because it's not acting out where I would open up to somebody, usually not the the right person or the person who didn't have the right tools because I wanted help. I wanted somebody to say, okay, let's take care of this. Let's do something about it before it gets any worse. But what ended up happening is that it just got worse and worse and worse. Um, the year before my senior prom, I went, we, my family and I took a trip to Thailand and my mom decided, hey, why don't we get a dress made for you? Because, hey, we're in Thailand and it's not expensive. So we did and we were sitting there in the dress shop and one of my family members, I'm not going to say who, just because I'm not, but she, <laughs> you know, she said, oh, wow, that dress looks really amazing on you. But, you know, now you can't gain or lose a single pound until next year. Which was for me, it was kind of like this amazing revelation that I could control my body size. Here's something I could control, which is not harmful. I'm doing air quotes and it's mine and I can do it and it's great. And so that's what I did. I started cutting out meals and doing it very not so obviously. Because I didn't, in my mind, I was not, I was not trying to lose weight. I was just trying to stay the same weight. And I was not athletic at all as a kid or a high school person or I just, it wasn't in same. the cards for me. <laughs> it really was not in the yeah. cards for me. I tried, yeah. but it was not good. And after the second time where you're told, well, you can't make the team, but you could be a manager. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds familiar. It's just not fun. Um, and I just basically, started hey i would i would eat breakfast and then i wouldn't eat lunch and then i would or wouldn't eat dinner it depended on the day and um actually one of my friends who i should give a shout out to because at the time i completely denied it but she wrote me a letter and said i think you're anorexic because you know you're and i said oh i was like i don't even know what that is i'm not that that's not what i am and looking back of course that was those were the seeds uh getting planted for that and of course, because that was a huge cut in, in nutrition for me, I lost weight and the dress was too big and it was, but it was, it's got me started on this cycle of this is how I control how I feel by controlling my body. And then of course, if you go to college with that, it just gets a million times worse, which it did because college for me, I went to NYU 
which I think is a very good school, but I did not have a very good experience there. My freshman year, I had the, a horrible roommate who must have lied on her uh, roommate application form and said she was studious and non-smoking and nice and all of these things because she was the the basically the dorm party girl mm. and i walked in on her many times with gentlemen in the room and there were parties and my stuff was ruined and so i the way that i handled it was i would just eat and I eat and eat and I would take food from the dining hall and eat it and, and hide it and eat it and and it just sort of in me built I, I what was building in me was just this huge sense of despair and I wanted to get out of it so badly and I wanted to go home and I wanted and, and I knew that my, my mom and my sister were preparing to move to Singapore. So there was no space for a discussion of me switching schools or anything. There was really just no were they aware of it, your parents? My mom was aware that I was miserable because I would – at one point, I started going home into to Philadelphia every weekend, and I would cry hysterically every time my mom drove me to the train station to go back to New York. I would say, I hate it. I don't want to be there. And she – I think she just didn't want me to give up, but she would say, you, you can do it. You know, you you're, it's just the first year. You're just figuring it out and this and that. And – um, I think looking back, there were a lot of signs there that, that were missed around what I was really going through. And I was very good at hiding it. I was very, very good at hiding it. Do you blame her for not handling it in a different way? No. I, I really think she did the best that she could with what she had. And that is after many years of therapy. But yeah, I, I really just don't think she knew what she, what was going on. Uh, I wasn't sharing what was going on. I don't think I knew what was going on. But the the subsequent years were basically me trying out eating disorder behavior until what stuck for me was basically bulimia, which was I would eat and then I would throw up and eat and throw up. And at its at its peak, it was just cycles and cycles and cycles of that for, you know, entire weekends or whenever I wasn't in class or um for me, I, I just I'm, – I'm thinking about applying for a PhD, so I had to go and look back at my NYU transcript. And I can see just based on the grades how I was doing mentally. Just – you could see the dip and then there's a little spike where I try to get better and it's just up and down and up and down. And I don't know how I, <laughs> I graduated. Whoa. Really, I don't know how I graduated, but it was very, very challenging. That's wild. And so – You've been in recovery from bulimia for 10 years now. So I entered recovery in 2008 um, in like really officially sort of this is this is done. Was there a defining moment for that? I think I was tired of losing relationships and of feeling like a monster every time. And that's and I did. And it, it had been many cycles of that and many years of that. And I was just tired and it was really one of those moments where I had to make a choice of either continuing down this path and not doing anything with my life or um, figuring out how to get out of it. And there were a lot of factors that added to that choice. I had met Ben, uh, who is now my husband, the year before. And while it took me many years to realize that, hey, this is the person for me. 
meeting him and having him around saying his what he would say to me constantly was you are like an onion and i believe that there's a very good passionate interesting healthy core inside but you have a lot of layers of you know skin and dirt and stuff on the outside which may take you many years to peel but i'm here for the ride when was that that he said that uh, he said that very early on into our knowing each other. You're together how long? We were, we're now we're, we're together, I guess it's going to be, what is this, 2019, 12 years we've known each other. We've known each other, we met in 2007. We started dating in 2008, but it was very on and off, very, very, very on and off. And we really got together in 2009. So we've been together, together 10 years, and we were married in 2010. And at what point did you share with him this stuff that you were dealing with? Right away. I told him. What I, is right away? Like, really first right away. First date? I mean, first, I mean, when I, when I realized that he was interested in pursuing a relationship, I told him, you really don't want a relationship with me, and here are the reasons why. I told him, uh, you know, I told him I was sick. I told him about all these things in my past. I told him, you know, I've tried to kill myself. I've, you know, I really tried to make myself really crazy looking and seeming so that he would run the other direction. I mean, the guy was moving, you know, he was, we, we met in Singapore. Right. I forgot right? about this. So after college, I finished NYU. I finished a semester early because I had to get out of there and I just did everything I could to get out of there. And, I went to Singapore where my parents were um, to get help, which did not happen there. It was very, very hard. First of all, mental health and mental illness at the time in Singapore is not really something you talk about. It's um, the first the first therapist that I went to with my parents said to me <laughs> like within 10 minutes, oh, she needs to be institutionalized, which my father said, let's do it. And my mother said, Hell no. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know what? I think I, I, I get why my dad said that. And I sort of agree with him that at that point, I probably needed some sort of inpatient treatment. Probably not in Singapore, but I think it was, it would have, it would have saved me a lot. Maybe. I don't know. But so how was it decided that you weren't going to do that? My mom makes the decisions in the house. That's, that's how <laughs> and that's how it was decided. And so what I ended up doing was I started, I was working with my dad for a while. And then I was, I found this program that taught slam poetry in schools. So I hooked up with them and then started working in the schools, which was really also a very big part of showing me like, hey, I'm kind of worth something. I can teach and do things and it's cool. Um, and then I met Ben, it was a, a Jewish singles event on the roof of Chabad oh my in God. Singapore. It was his first week there. I'd already been there for a couple of months and my mom was sort of tired of me being in the house all the time. So she said, you're going, you have to go. And I did not want to go, but I went. And I just remember I was sitting there like, okay, how long do I have to stay here before it's cool for me to leave? And then there was this guy and he had a circle of people around him and everyone was laughing. Everyone was laughing. And I was like, okay, I want to laugh. I mean, it's sort of actually what I was really thinking was, let's see if this guy can make me laugh because <laughs> my life sucked. I really, yeah. yeah. 
And he did. He he told some really, probably some pretty lame joke. And it was funny. I don't know. I found it funny. And we started talking and just hanging out. And then I realized that he wanted to do more than hang out. And that's when I started going, nope. And I'm pushing my hands away towards <laughs> Harper, like really holding him back and saying, you don't want to mess with this. And he kept saying, yes, I do. And when we were dating, I, I don't know how many times I broke up with him and in how many countries, but many times over. And he just kept saying, I don't know why, but this is it. And eventually, eventually, the way I realized it was he had gotten a job in Israel after being in Singapore and he was in business school. And I decided to move back to New York by myself, which was a terrible idea. <laughs> Um, but I was working in some translation office and this was after I'd already started therapy and was in active recovery. And I, I was sitting at work one day translating probably some marriage certificate. We'll say marriage certificate just because it sounds good. And I just thought, shit, I, I love this guy. I have feelings for him. What am I going to do? And what I ended up doing was going to Israel and not leaving. Except that you've lived here for years now. <laughs> but you went there, you went there to be with him. Right. But we came back together. So wow. I went, I went there. I had a ticket already to go and visit, but I just didn't, I just stayed. I stayed and my, and I, my parents had to deal with uh, figuring out what to do with my stuff. But it's interesting because it seems like he clearly, this onion analogy is huge of he saw something in you. He sees something in you. And was like, I don't care what this shit is that we have to deal with to sort of unlayer this onion, this person, because I know there's something good in here, which clearly is the truth. Yeah, he's um, he's dealt with a lot of shit. For yeah, <laughs> got to give him a lot of credit for that. And I do. Good. I do. So we were saying that you've been in recovery for 10 years for eating disorder. The other things that we talked about that you sort of self-diagnosed or have been diagnosed with... How does that affect your day-to-day -day life these days? To answer these days, I think I do have to go back a little bit because the biggest thing that I have learned over the last 10 years is how to have self-compassion, which I did not have at all before that. And when I decided to um, try and get better, I found – I called the Gestalt Center in New York City and they matched me up with a therapist. And in my first session – I was very skeptical. I'd been through many therapists before her and I sort of like blarred out uh, for everything that I'd done. And I just kept saying, I'm terrible. I'm a bad person. I'm a monster. And this, and she just sort of looked at me. And the one, the question that she asked me was, did you set out to hurt people when, do you set out to hurt people when you wake up in the morning? And I said, no. And she asked me a few more like that. And then she said, well, I don't see a bad person. I see a good person who's sick, but who needs a lot of compassion. And that just, it was the click that I needed. And I learned over many years and I, how to have self-compassion, how to recognize negative self-talk and doubt. And through becoming an athletic person and getting to know my body. And by that point, I had had an eating disorder actively for five or six years. So, and, and by actively, I mean every single day of my life for many, many hours. 
my digestive system did not work. When I tried to eat something normally, it would just like freeze. It just did not work. So I had to find a nutritionist who helped me um, basically relearn how to eat like a toddler, like starting from liquid and mushy foods to slowly bringing back foods. And the only way I got through that was by being compassionate and by writing, writing everything, a ton of writing and just learning how to listen to my body and how to talk to myself and, and how to get through these moments. And there were, through this recovery, yes, it's been 10 years, but really it's been maybe, when did we meet? 2010? No, earlier. Earlier? Oh no, I moved to New York in 2010. So it must be around then. To, yeah, 2010. Yeah. 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 I moved to New York. I worked at a startup that did not go anywhere. And then I went to Buddy Media. Are we allowed to speak its name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, Buddy Media. Buddy Media. Um, and so it really, it's been since I would say 2013 that I'm, I would say I'm in a, in a recovery place. Up until then, it was a lot of up and down. I was on medication. I was off medication. I was doing well. I was not doing well. Um, and it's why we also, you know, we were married in 2010 and we didn't get pregnant until 2015 because I was not going to get pregnant while not doing well. It just, it was a decision that I, you know, really, first of all, I was told so many times that I would never have kids because of my history. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to go in there in an, from an unhealthy place. So how did you decide what healthy and well was to be able to have a child? I don't know if it was something that I decided, but really I started feeling – so I hate healthy and un unhealthy, good, bad, all these things. I never I, – I try not to use them because they, they don't mean anything to me. It's really being able to wake up into a day – and live the day in the most well way possible. So that means even if I have challenging moments or if I slip or if even if I fully relapse, approaching it from a well place. So being able to be compassionate, being able to quickly take the steps I need to get back on the, the track or the journey and being aware and having and, and that's what really meditation has done for me is it's cultivated my awareness so I, even in moments where I was really in a very bad place, I was aware of being in a very bad place. It wasn't that same slip and slide all the way down to the depths of depression and, and getting to, to places of self-harm. It was, okay, I know right now that what I'm doing is not serving me. And I either need to ride it through or I need to figure out how to stop. And it was, it's constant conversations like that. And now I still have those conversations. They're at a much lesser degree, but, and look, I have two kids. Um, I get frustrated and I'm very tired because if, if for, if so by some miracle one is sleeping, the other one is not sleeping. And, you know, I went back to coffee because of that. <laughs> but, uh, but I, yeah, I have moments where I just want to scream my head off and, you know, just <laughs> slam the door and walk out of the house and say, I can't do this anymore. And I have to, I have to see that and own that. And, um, I think you could do a, I could do a whole nother podcast on mom guilt, but, and really say like, okay, let's, quickly pick out the feelings that are here because I don't want to uh, put them out on my children because it's not their fault. They're children. 
right? And or same thing with my students or with anybody in my life or myself. If I'm not super happy with what's going on with me, really being aware of the talk and and what's going on in my mind and and being constantly aware. It's the the phrase that comes to mind for me for all you Harry Potter fans out there is just constant vigilance, which is one one of the characters says in one of the books, you have to be constantly aware. It's true. I love that. You didn't decide, okay, I'm healthy today because that's not really how you function, but you did get to a point of like, okay, I'm ready to have kids or I feel well enough or capable enough to have this sort of new life with kids. What has that been like for you? Did you have any postpartum depression? What was that like? Having my children is the best thing I have ever done in my life. Um, If I had to stop doing everything else and I was lucky enough to spend all of my time with my children, maybe with a little hour here and there for running, then I'd be very, I'd be very happy because I didn't know I was missing something until Zoe was born. I feel like I was searching for a piece of myself or my identity that came through when she was born. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Endoband. For someone like me who spends way too much time on my laptop and also loves to travel, the ease of having my Endoband in my backpack or my suitcase allows me to work out anytime, anywhere. Endo stands for no days off. Stretch anywhere without having to go to the gym or pay for a class. The Endo Band helps me wake up, fight midday fatigue, and get a mini workout in while traveling. Endo Bands come in several different colors and can even wrap around your wrist like a bracelet. After working at events for many years, I've seen gift bags filled with a lot of crap that immediately gets thrown out. The Endo Band is the perfect item to include in your corporate programming or upcoming event gift bag as you can brand it with your logo. Then your employees or clients will have a useful product that will help them feel good and automatically associate it with you. Get your Endoband at endoband.com and use promo code MVP for 20% off your entire purchase. That's N-D-O-Band.com, promo code MVP for 20% off. Your body doesn't take days off. Why should you? Now, back to the show. It's interesting because I feel like so many people talk about how having kids don't fix problems and that it's so important to love yourself before you have kids because all of a sudden this being is going to take over your life. And it sort of sounds like the opposite happened for you. Well, I mean, yeah, I hated myself until the moment Zoe was born. No, no, no. I'm I'm totally kidding. I absolutely had to work on myself first. There was no way I would be able to be any kind of mother really that I would be okay with if I was not in a good place before. And that meant really committing to to the steps that I needed to take for myself. And that included going to therapy, that included writing, that included meditation, that included finding the physical activity that I need to exert the sort of the stress energy that builds up. And I still, that's very, very important for me. The, the fact that you know, I've cycled through many forms of exercise um, over my life and, you know, rollerblading, boxing, Zumba, running. And I, t- every one of them I take really to its its peak because that's how I get all of that anxiety out is I 
rather than having it build up until it explodes, I pour it into a productive activity, which allows me to connect with my body and and be physical um, in a way that sustains me. But I had to be in a good place with myself. Otherwise, there was no way I would have been able to deal with the weight gain of pregnancy. And um, I was fortunate enough not to have that much morning sickness with my first pregnancy. But with my second, I had morning sickness all day the entire way through, which was very challenging because it was triggering. I was throwing up all day. Uh, you know, at work and, and, um, nauseous all the time. And when you, when I, it really challenged my view of myself. I had a lot of moments where I was thinking, oh, what is going on here? Why can't I deal with this? I'm probably doing it myself. It's probably me wanting to go back to the old ways and not the pregnancy. So that was very challenging. And, during both pregnancies, I went back to my therapist and I saw her um, weekly, which I had stopped right before because I, you know, it's sort of, it's with my relationship with my therapist is now is sort of like on a monthly check-in basis. And before my first pregnancy, it was sort of like that also. But when, you know, as soon as Ben and I started talking about having kids, I said, okay, I'm going to need support. Um, because a lot of things come up when, when you're pregnant that are not necessarily just the pregnancy, but things in life change, relationships change, all this stuff. Well, and it's amazing that you recognize that in advance and preventatively, as opposed to like deep in a depression and then contacting a therapist. So you clearly are a very self-aware person to know what your needs are and what you can do for yourself to help you. I have to be or I, I don't survive. Um, and that's not to say that I, you know, I don't have moments that are really hard because I do. And after having Zoe, it was children are challenging. Um, they are their own little people and they come with their own needs and their own preferences. And they don't, most of the time they don't match up with mine. <laughs> you know, uh, when Zoe was, was 11 months old, she decided she was not going to drink from a bottle. 11 weeks old, 11 weeks old, and which matched up right when with, with, when I had to go back to school. I was doing my master's at the time. So that meant about, you know, four or five months of, driving to Columbia for class, then driving home to nurse her, then driving back to class because we tried every bottle, every sippy cup, everything that you could possibly think of. And she was not having it. She was it. not having it. Didn't want it. And she would wait. She would wait seven, eight hours if I had a day-long class to eat, which meant that she was up all night nursing. And so there were you know moments where I just was not, not in myself. And it was very challenging for me to deal with weight fluctuations and health fluctuations and because I, I do actually keep a very uh, – a, 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 it has to be a very consistent pattern of eating and taking vitamins and exercising because if I stray from it, even now, even today, then – then it becomes really hard. Um, either I have days where I'm, I, it, it affects my mood, it affects my energy levels, it affects how I interact with my kids and Ben and everyone else, it affects the way I work. And so I know that I have to stick to it. So, you know, I have these, um, back then I would call, I used to call them safe and unsafe foods. Now I call them, you know, the, I don't really call them anything, but I know that if I'm going to eat them, then there's going to be a period of recovery afterwards because they're going to affect me in ways that take away from my functionality. 
And so how do you manage the relationship with food and taking care of yourself and taking care of your kids? Uh, that's a hard question. I, for me, kids come first. So which, you know, is not everybody's philosophy, which I fully appreciate. But the kids eat first, um, which means I get, you know, Zoe eats, I either pump or nurse, depending on, you know, what Ellie's up to. Um, and then I figure out food. Ben comes home later anyway. So then I figure out food for us. Um, that's really sort of our evenings, but I think my own food insecurity, my own insecurity around food, um, has made me sort of over active in making sure that my kids eat, um, which might also be sort of like the Jewish mom thing. But, <laughs> uh, but when I pack a lunch for Zoe, it's way more food than she'll ever eat. And it usually comes home like half full because, um, but I'm very, very much aware of food and conversations around food. There's no bad or good food, healthy, unhealthy, which she gets, you know, from the environment and at school. I actually had a, a fight, really a fight with her previous daycare because they had a whole unit on healthy versus unhealthy foods. And I said, who are you to decide what is a healthy food for my child? What if I think she, she can, I, what if I think that her drinking chocolate milk is a good thing because it has protein? Mm -hmm. But you're telling her it's an unhealthy food, and they they ended up they ended up like not continuing with the unit because I made so much noise around it, and she was, you know, a year and a half old at the time, so she really wasn't even getting it anyway. But um, it was the messaging yeah. that really rubbed you the wrong way, for sure. And you didn't want her to feel like something that you're at home saying is healthy, or vice versa, would be the opposite in school, right? And I'm very, I'm still like that. And and she'll say, she'll ask me, mommy, is this a healthy food? And I'll say, it's a food you're eating right now. And it's great that you're eating it. And it's great that you're also eating a Brussels sprout with it. And I'm very aware. I, I taught her how to recognize feelings probably when she, I think she was less than a year old. And everything is about expressing feelings and expressing needs and expressing in using words and really and recognizing and validating. And for me, I think it's, it's reparenting myself as I parent the kids. Do you have any fear around passing on any of your health issues to your son or daughter? I, I think it's always in the back of my mind somewhere. I know, I mean, Zoe is a very different kid than I was. She's very confident and she's very, she's super outgoing and, very stubborn and expressive about what she needs and when. And I have tried, I mean, she's only three, but I've never seen her retreat inward. Um, when she's upset, it's very outward and it's very clear. Um, is that Ben? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. And I think that's why the balance is good between us because he expresses in a way that I have had to learn how to express and I'm not really still not good at it at all, but it's it's a good balance and you know Ellie I don't know he's a, he genetically I think just by looking at him is probably more like me um he's very chill and like mellow and he when he gets his shots he cries for maybe 3 seconds and then he's like okay what's next <laughs> which is me I have a you know a very high pain threshold and he's 5 months old 
So I don't know yet, but I worry about that all the time. And Ben and I talk about it all the time. What would we, how would we handle if this came up? And what if our son or daughter expressed, um, you know, wanted to express their gender in a different way? Or what if our son or daughter had an eating disorder or was depressed or had a learning disability? And we go through scenarios because that's how I heal through from things. And that's how I, that's how I get through situations in the future. So, you know, when I said to you earlier that I listened to many of your podcasts, that was sort of my preparation. I had to get myself in that. So how is Harper going to talk to me? And what is the setting going to be like? And what will the questions be like? And I have to live it before I live it so that when I am living it, most of it is okay. Mm -hmm. Love that. So you mentioned students a little while ago. Can you talk about how your health and your well-being has informed your work and what the I Am Project is? Sure. So I'll start with the I Am Project. Um, the I Am Project was born out of a lot of work and study and personal healing practice that I've done around everything that we talked about before. And... I got to a point in my own healing where I thought about maybe teaching it to other people. And the way that I approached it at the time was I decided I would get certified as a yoga instructor. Um, about four days into that training, my grandfather passed away. So I had to, I flew to Israel for the funeral and the, and the Shiva and the, grief that I did not know how to feel, really did not know how to feel, was so overwhelming. And this was in 2012 that it just completely knocked me off track. Off, I relapsed in a very bad way. I was completely lost. My grandfather for me was, he was a father figure to me. And he, um, he was just this amazing man, kind to everybody. He was a teacher. He had, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of his students at his funeral and, um, and came to the Shiva and, and, um, and he was, he always was an influence for me. And he was also one of the people that I could talk to when I was going through things. My grandparents, all, all four of them, thank God, were so open to hearing me and housing me for many, many, Many of, you know, many times I would be in their homes when I was going through things. And, you know, when I would try, I would say something that I thought would, was shocking, like, oh, I, you know, you know, I did this or, or, or this is what I'm thinking right now. They would just listen, you know, and, and my grandfather would just say, okay, you know, you really, let's talk it through. Tell me about it. I, you know, I, maybe I don't know how to help, but I can listen. And it was just so, so huge. Um, and so when he passed away, it was a very, very big loss for me. Um, and it just really shattered. It, it was felt like it felt like glass shattering throughout the whole family because he was the glue that held us together. And he, you know, we had all these get togethers and, you know, my mom was in a very bad place afterwards. Um, and I just, I came back from Israel and I just had, did not know what to do with myself. And I actually, you know, a couple of nights after I came back, I had a dream and my grandfather was there and he took all of my writing and he just threw it out on the table in the dream, threw it out on the table. And he said to me, you have written every word 
that you can about how to heal yourself. Now you need to put it together and teach it to other people. And I got up the next morning and started writing. And I just wrote the first lesson plan for the I Am Project. And I just, um, and I said, okay, now what do I do with it? So I called my old sixth grade teacher who still ran the, the, that special program that I was in. And I said, Hey, I have this crazy idea. Um, I have this program. Uh, I'm would like to come and teach it to your class. I'll do it for free because I've never done it in a class setting before because I had started to use it with students. I had private students and I started meditating with them and we were doing movement to get through things. And, um, and she said, all right, sure, come. And I came and I, and it was the end of the year. It was June or, or May or June. And I did a, an hour and a half session with her sixth graders. And then I left. And then, um, about a week later, I got a very big envelope of letters from those students telling me how much they learned and how much they loved it and how much they're still using the tools. And I, you know, I, I sort of, I, I, I'm connected to some of them through social media. So I, once in a while, I'll shoot them a message like, Hey, are you still using this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. Oh. And, you know, they're, so they're in college now. That's so powerful. Yeah. So powerful. And I love that this all stems from this dream and this really important person in your life, recognizing who you are and what your gifts are, and that you have this sort of writing and teaching talent and how can it be put to use. So incredible. So you've continued to do that. I continue to do that. So from that moment, I went back with this teacher and I, we, Mary Beth, we wrote, she retired last year from teaching and she's with, you know, she's in California living, living life uh, on the sunny side. <laughs> but we wrote, we sort of co-wrote a proposal for the principal. And the following year, I came back to do a full year program at that school in her class. The following year, we spread it to the entire sixth grade. So 300 students. And that same year, I started pitching it to other schools in Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey. Um, I had connected through, you know, a couple of organizations that helped me get into different schools. And at one point, I think I was in, at the height of it, I was, I think, in 15 schools at once. And so I would, every single day, I would be in a different school, traveling to Philly, traveling here, traveling there. This was pre-kids, obviously. And just doing, and in public schools, private schools, charter schools, any school that would say yes, even if they couldn't pay for it, which Ben didn't really love, but I would do it. I would just go and, and do as many sessions as I could. And there were schools with, with very, um, you know, that had a, a very raw, very raw situations that took to it and the students took to it and they, you know, and, and at the time they would tell me how much they appreciated it. And I, I would hope that they're using it, but I, I could see the impact of it and I could see, and I sort of, I wondered what it would be like to be in a school full time, uh, which is what I explored while I was finishing my master's and right around the time Zoe was born. Um, and I found the school that I'm currently in, which is, um, Kinneret Day School in the Bronx. And it's a Jewish day school, very, it's a small Jewish day school. Very, it reminds me a lot of the school that I went to in France, which is small class sizes and, um, the class moves together from year to year. It's very, it's a community school. I know a lot of the families outside of the school. And I started there as an assistant teacher because they said, look, you know, what you do is amazing. Um, I, we have no idea how to put it into our school right now, but 
we would be interested to see to explore it. So just come in here. We have one opening. So I was I came in as an assistant Hebrew teacher uh, for third and fourth grade, and while I was there, I taught bits and pieces of the I Am project to my classes, and then slowly started expanding to second grade and this grade and that grade. One here, one there, one there. Um, the following year, you know, I I said, you know, look, I'm much better suited for middle school. And they still said to me, like, oh, we don't really know what to do with this, whatever. Um, so then I, I went in as a uh, co-teacher for Judaic studies in fifth through eighth grade. And I, and I did more of it. I really implemented uh, meditation every day for some of the classes and a whole bunch of different things. And, um, and this year they said, look, you know, let's, we got to write you, you got to write a class for us. Just whatever it is, it has to have some Judaics in it. Let's just do it. So I ha- I'm teaching a class this year for seventh and eighth grade called, in Hebrew, it's called Chemdat, which is cool because it has a double meaning. So Chemdat, it's, um, their, it's an acronym for Chagim, uh, Chagim Midot Dinim and Tfilah, which is holidays, Jewish values, um, Jewish practices and prayer. But Chemdat also means, um, delight, pleasure. It's a precious thing. It's basically really nice feelings. Um, and the class in English is called Jewish Life and Practices with a Spiritual Lens. So what we do is we we do look at all of these, uh, you know, the prayer and the Jewish values and everything, but we, we don't just read text and discuss. We look at the spiritual side of it. We look at, you know, I ask the students to reflect every single day on what we're talking about. They have service projects that they do out in the world and in the school. And, um, and I weave in the values that I'd written into the I Am Project curriculum, which eventually my, it, when I wrote my thesis, it became the, um, it be, I wrote the sort of the Jewish day school version of it, which had, um, many Jewish values and compassion, kindness, empathy, but through the Jewish texts. And that's how I teach it. And it's a two year curriculum. So this year's eighth graders are getting a really condensed version, but this year's seventh graders will be the first to have the full two years. And it's, first of all, it's a lot of fun to teach because it really feels like a philosophy class. So the students feel, you know, they really write and talk about what they feel. And, you know, I, I have a very, I'm very big on, not using gendered language and, and really having I statements. I feel I need because kids will speak in you like, well, you, you know, when you go walk down the street, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, when I walk down the street, I feel and I make them own, make them really own who they are and what they're and, and, you know, sort of toggle with their identity a little bit. And do they appreciate this? I think so. Um, it's a tough age. It's a tough age. You know, they're, they're not, many of them will not, you know, outright come out and say, oh, we really like this, but I'll see it in their writing and I'll see, hear it from their parents. Um, and I'll hear it when they're talking about the teachers that they like and don't like. Um, I think they appreciate it. I don't know, but I, I do. I am having a lot of fun. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so amazing that you found this school that saw something in you, just like Ben. That's right. <laughs> and said, okay, we want you as part of this. We don't really know how to fit it in, but we're going to make it work some way. And over the years, it's built up more and more, which is just so incredible. And that this is all stemmed from your own stuff, you know? And it's so amazing that you can turn this around for yourself and be in a good place yourself and also teach other people these skills, especially at such a young age, is incredible. 
That's right. I'm 23. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we worked together nine years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. When I was um, 14. <laughs> you were just so advanced to be working at a tech company at 14. So I appreciate your willingness to share your story and to especially share your recovery and the process that it's taken for you to get to where you are today a happy mom with a job that she loves and this incredible project that turned into something bigger. How can people learn more about you and the I Am Project and all the work that you do? Okay. Well, this is the question that I was thinking about the most, actually. (laughs) So I can be found in many, many different ways. For the I Am Project, there is a website. It's theiamproject.co. It's not really that updated. Uh, it does. I have a lot of student videos and great things to look at. Um, the best way to find me is through that website to send me an email or um, to follow the I Am Project on Instagram or Facebook and send me a message. I just started a new blog, really literally this week, where I am taking a lot of the subjects that I've written about over the years I'm sort of funneling them out through my running because I do that three times a week. And so it's three opportunities to write. And the best way to find that is on Instagram to follow Strong Mama Runs with a Z at the end. Um, and I'm just sort of playing with it. But I, I'm, if you reach out to me, I will respond. I'm always happy to, to and, I, and I do work with people one on one and kids and adults. Um, and happy to speak to people. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Harper. I'm really excited to share that I've teamed up with The Mighty to create a community for you, my listeners, to connect with me, other listeners, past and upcoming guests, and people living with or affected by invisible illness. If you want to have a conversation about the topics addressed on the show, head over to MGTY dot co slash made visible again that's mgty dot co slash made visible and i hope to connect with you over there thanks for tuning into made visible we hope you learned about something new today if you enjoyed this episode please take a few minutes to subscribe rate and review the podcast on itunes we can't do this without your support Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.